help put a target on children's backs. Put a children, put a target on the parents' backs. And once again, get in the middle of their decisions and say, you don't know what's, you don't know what's best. You'll know what's good for your kid. You'll know what's best for your family. You're right, I'm not begging. You're right, I'm not begging. It's, what's gonna happen is gonna happen. Just don't you dare call me a friend. The words of Alabama State Representative Neil Rafferty take on an added importance this week. Alabama's law making providing affirming care to trans youth a felony went into effect on May 9th. Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. The most stringent anti-trans measure we've seen yet went into effect Monday morning, Alabama's SB 184, also known as the Vulnerable Child Protection Act. It states that anyone providing gender-affirming care to anyone under 19 can be convicted of a felony, face up to 10 years in prison, and a $15,000 fine. That's right. Let's jail healthcare professionals in the middle of a global pandemic. This type of care would include, according to the law, providing puberty blockers, hormone therapy, or physical gender-affirming surgeries, which don't happen to people under 19, but the Alabama legislature, or more accurately, the Alabama Republicans, kind of forgot about that little detail. This law is dystopian. It's been panned by medical professionals, parents, and trans youth directly affected. One of those, 15-year-old Harley Walker, had this to say to reporters at a protest last weekend near the Alabama State Capitol. Just being able to be who I am um, really kind of saved me. And I was going through such hard mental health at that time. And if I would have continued going on that path, um, I would have gotten severe depression and even maybe thought had thoughts about suicide and because I just am, I was not happy. I was not who I was. And so it saved my life pretty much. And it um, saved my mental health and it has benefited me in so many ways now. Now the proponents of the bill, including Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey, say that the bill is designed to prevent affirming care because they term it, quote, child abuse even though every medical organization in the world says otherwise. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear from Governor Ivy herself. You talk about why you signed that legislation? It's just the right thing to do. Our children are growing up at an age with small children. Lifestyles offer a lot of challenges, and we need to protect our young people. The good Lord makes you a boy when you're born, you're a boy. If you good Lord makes you a girl when you're born, you're a girl. And so we need to spend our energy and focus on helping these young people become healthy, productive adults, as God would have to be. 
On the other side, ACLU legal eagle Chase Drangio had a lot to say on Democracy Now! Monday. This is a law that's been introduced in Alabama since 2020. We've been able to block it in 2020 and 2021, and they continue to move it forward. Unfortunately, on the last day of the legislative session, it was pushed through. It was immediately signed by the governor. It had an emergency effective date, which meant there was only 30 days from the time it was signed by Governor Ivey in Alabama to when it went into effect, creating an absolute terrible terrifying sea change in the reality on the ground for trans people, their families, and their doctors in Alabama, and not just in Alabama, but across the Southeast. The University of Alabama has a gender clinic uh, that is serving trans adolescents and their families, not just in Alabama, but in Georgia and Florida and Tennessee and Mississippi. And now, in a, man, in a matter of hours, all of that care is is becoming a felony, which means families are uprooting their lives. They're trying to figure out when and whether they can get life-saving care for their adolescent uh, children. Um, and I think it's important to note that this is all happening in the same context that we're seeing the criminalization of abortion care, that we're continuing to see the massive suppression of votes across the country. And all of these things are interconnected and creating chaos and fear among individuals, families, and communities across 50% of the country at least, because we are looking at a situation where come June, we're going to have an absolute sea change in the realities of our federal constitutional rights, which is going to lead to actions by the states that are going to continue this type of escalation that we're seeing in Alabama and elsewhere. Now, there is federal court action pending on this Alabama law, but the law still went into effect because there was no decision by a federal judge on this as of yet. There could be one in the coming days and weeks. Also a reminder, the WNBA season started this past weekend. According to our own Shelby Weldon and Sid Ziegler, 20% of the league are openly out as of opening day. One of those is perhaps the league's best post player who's still sitting in a jail in Russia. The U.S. government has stated that they consider Brittany Griner now to be, quote, wrongfully detained by the Russian government. That means the U.S. government will seek to negotiate her return rather than let the legal process play out in Russia. Her agent, Lindsay Colas, said, quote, Brittany has been detained for 75 days, and our expectation is that the White House will do whatever is necessary to bring her home. Premier Hockey Federation Club President Digit Murphy apologized to the trans community Monday as she was taking on her new role as president of the Metropolitan Riveters team. She apologized to the trans community for previous support of the Women's Sports Policy Working Group. Murphy was a supporter for the group, but left over a year ago. She came under fire again after being named as the president of the Riveters. She had this to say in a video put on her social media Monday. I'm here to apologize to the trans community. When I signed on with the Women's Working Group, I didn't do my homework, and I messed up. Trans women are women. And I love advocating for women. I have devoted my whole life to doing that. So I want to be your advocate. And I apologize to you if I did anything to offend you. We built the Toronto Six in an education, empowerment, and inclusion platform. And at the Riveters, we're going to do the same. We want to have everyone playing hockey. We want to have everyone cheering for the ribs. We want to have everyone having an opportunity to play the sport that they love. So I hope that you'll come join us. You'll cheer on the ribs, and you'll be part of our community. A further explanation of what happened was in a story from Outsports' Sid Ziegler. Now, there is one thing about the story that must be cleared up. It is stated in the article that 
the Premier Hockey Federation removed medical and physical transition requirements from trans women last year. That's not exactly accurate. This is what the language actually says. Quote, transgender women are eligible to compete in the PHF if they've been living in their transgender identity for a minimum of two years. Now, here's the $64,000 question, and the Premier Hockey Federation still has not answered it. What exactly is their criterion? What does that mean to the league? What does that mean in light of of the new IOC framework and of International Hockey Federation guidelines, which will ultimately have the final say? Because the vast majority of the players in the PHF also play for various national teams, and they take part in international competitions that are under IHF auspices. Now, D.F. Pendry's noted hockey blogger and analyst had this to say on their Twitter, quote, the chairman of the PHF and the PHF leadership must also be held accountable for the PHF's mishandling of fan concerns, whether they be trans or not. This is not just a matter of what the Riveters will do under Digit Murphy's leadership, but what the entire PHF will do. Do I personally consider today progress? Yes. But I also remain deeply concerned because of the way the NWHL slash PHF handled things over the same time period, and I urge fans and the media to continue to push to make the Federation be better. Elsewhere in Outsports, Alex Reimer had an excellent article on Dwayne Wade with a message at the Met Gala to parents of trans youth. Wade told Variety on the red carpet, quote, Think of the moment when you are in the hospital and you grabbed your daughter, and you looked at your daughter. All the things that went through your mind and all the emotions that went through your mind and how much love fills your heart at that moment. Don't let that ever leave you no matter what. Just a note, D. Wade and your spouse, Gabrielle Union, your voices carry a lot of weight, especially in our community. Please use them. And speaking of using your voice, Endurance racer Charlie Martin, fresh off an excellent debut at Laguna Seca, had this to say about the situation on BBC Sports Desk podcast on Monday about how the campaign of exclusion is building in her country in sport and elsewhere. This idea that transgender women are going to dominate female sport and take over, where is the evidence that that's happening? What we see is that every time a trans woman actually wins or does well, we end up with a headline, a photo of someone on a podium, and this kind of horrible backlash, this toxic conversations like we've seen for Leah Thomas. But what we're not seeing is that every time a trans woman loses or finishes mid-pack or finishes below average, which is actually a regular thing that happens, you know, if you look at Leah Thomas, look at her results recently, like, we've picked the one time that she did well and it's like we're saying you know no one says cisgender women can't compete because a cisgender woman wins and there are cisgender women who are setting world records uh in the case of like you know katie ledecky people like that who are setting times that are well well beyond anything that leah thomas is doing and yet when it's a cisgender person doing this we celebrate their success when it's a transgender woman having one one win one podium we turn around and we, and we say, you know, this isn't right, this is wrong, this is trans women dominating. When I'm thinking about what Charlie Martin is saying here, 
I'm also thinking about a group of soccer fans and two teams in the south of the UK this week and a match that took place in a tiny town called Bexhill on the Sea. It's on the southern coast of the UK. They hosted their down-the-road rivals from Hastings United. Now, there were also some protesters there. You know, the usual women won't type of gender-critical protesters because it just so happens one of the teams has a transgender woman on it. Hastings United goalkeeper Blair Hamilton. Yes, that Blair Hamilton recently called up to the England University squad, Blair Hamilton. A, a player who's known in the university ranks as the washing machine because she has a way of keeping her sheets clean. Now, this group of protesters came to the game, you know, the usual women won't wished, gender critical types. They were at this game. What they ran into was supporters of both teams and the players of both teams telling them to get lost. They were basically ran off the spot by fans and players alike. Now, Football V Transphobia's Natalie Washington on her Twitter had a lot of reportage about this incident. And there was something she said that's very important. Quote, There's no decision makers at games like this. No press, no TV. The only people who are seeing this protest are the players and a few people come to watch, usually friends and family. I understand there was a few youth players making their debuts, young women and girls. The hilarious depressing bit is the tweet which says the almost universal hostility at the match today. Does this not give them pause for thought? Do they not wonder why everyone there is actually fine with trans women playing? My main conclusion here is that they're really starting to target individual trans people with their protest, even though it's not at all in the public eye. This is something the relevant governing bodies and leagues need to get ahead of the game on. This is tier six, amateur football. It's not elite. It's not professional. It's a transparent attempt to intimidate individuals and to make including trans people too much of a pain for even grassroots clubs to bother with. I think it'll fail because I see a lot of support for trans people at this level. This lot got run out of the park by the women playing. Great work to everyone involved. Natalie, I agree with you. To the fans of Bexhill and of Hastings United, Good on you. You done good. You done real good. To Blair Hamilton, keep putting up them clean sheets, girl. And don't let the gender criticals or the gender free or whatever their brand this week is get you down. And thanks again to Natalie Washington for the 411 on that. And that's the red alert clacks. And you know what that means. We got to give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, Natalie Washington joins us here for more 411 on the impact of football v transphobia and the preview of the FA Cup men's and women's finals this weekend. I'm Carly Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. And welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay-Webb. And if you like association football, May is the happiest month and it's the cruelest month. On one side, you're looking up the table to thinking, who wins the table? 
who gets promoted, who wins the National Cup. And if you're a fan of the teams more towards the bottom, you're wondering, will we get to stay at the level we're at or will we be dropped down next season? Ah, the joy and pain of promotion and relegation. But also in association football, there has been a movement to make the game more accepting at a number of levels. In 1993, the Kick It Out movement began. And now it has bloomed into a global movement to make the sport of football or soccer to us unwashed colonials a lot more democratic and a lot more accepting. In more recent years, there are also pushes for, such as football versus homophobia. And in 2018, football versus transphobia stepped to the fore. And ironically enough, it started in a nation that's turning, seems to be more and more transphobic by the minute, the United Kingdom. One of the biggest voices, perhaps the biggest voices behind this movement is Natalie Washington. Now, when Natalie Washington is not campaigning to make football more open for trans people, she's out there playing herself. And a little bit more than a month ago, she was part of a history-making match. A match between Trans Radio UK United and Dulwich United, a team in the FA Women's 5th Division. It was the first time in British, in English football history, and perhaps in world football history, that a team completely composed of transgender women laced them up and played a game. And I'm pleased and honored to have Natalie Washington on our show, and I'm going to beam her up right now. Coming in from the UK on FA Cup Final Week, Natalie Washington, welcome to the Transporter Room, Energize. Hello, great to be here again. Great. <laughs> yeah, great to, <laughs> yeah, great to have you back. And this past weekend, you felt some of that joy from this end of the season. Your own team looks like they're making a move up. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, yeah. So we, I wasn't, I didn't actually play yesterday uh, because, um, like, I was doing something else. But the, um, yeah, they got a great four-one win against a team that was kind of a couple of places behind us in the league. So fingers crossed, um, that should get us promoted for next season. So we finished second in the league. So exciting times, and that'd be the highest the highest that we've ever played as a club um, in the leagues. So that'd be tier six. So very exciting. So if things kind of shake out, where would you move for? Where will you be next season? Um, well, so the with the current division we're in is the Hampshire County Women's Division One, which is obviously a county level division. Um, the next division is the Southern Region Division One. So it's the sixth tier, so like sixth division, if you like, um, and it's a it's basically a wider geographical area. So obviously we'll be going a little bit further for away games and stuff like that. And as the as you go up the divisions from then on, the geography the, the geography gets wider. Players get a bit better, teams get a bit fitter, probably a bit younger, <laughs> which is a problem for me. But yeah, oh, looking forward on, to it. Know. If if I'm selected, of course. Well, who knows? But yeah, come on, you're in your twenties, your, your dang self. Come on. No, I'm no, I'm very much in my thirties. <laughs> so, yeah. So well, hey, well, hey, I'm. I'm a, I'm nibbling into the fifties now. So want to trade ages <laughs> now? Now, before we get into the meat of this though, hmm. big week, big week in English football, FA cup week, you've got Liverpool kind of beat up. They still have hopes of winning the table in the premiership. 
Chelsea, on the other hand, is facing this drama again. When are they not facing drama over yeah. who will be in their lineup? Who will be in the summer transfer? Who will be in and out in the summer transfer period? So with both teams kind of unsettled heading into this final, who you got? Yeah, it's a really interesting one, actually. And it's, it's an exciting weekend because we've, of course, got both the FA Cup finals. Chelsea are in both of them, the women's one on the Sunday. Um, and I we see Chelsea, Chelsea women, women going for the double as well. So I think for the men's one, if, if, you, if you press me, I would probably go Liverpool. I think they're in a little bit better shape at the minute. I think Chelsea have been a little bit inconsistent. Um, they're probably they're going to finish third in the league. Probably they they might they could even slip up and finish fourth. But I think third is most likely where it's at for them. So, but I think I think Liverpool are obviously very much going for the the grand slam. You know they could still win the league. I don't think they will, but they could still win the league. They can still win the Champions League, of course, um, and they're in the final of that against Real Madrid. So I think I, I fancy Liverpool for this one. Uh, I've seen, I have actually seen Liverpool and Chelsea live both this season. I've been lucky enough to get to, I've only been to two Premier League games this season and I've seen both. Um, very, very good. So like any other era, this Liverpool side is really standout, but obviously the Manchester City side is also very standout. So <laughs> it's um, it's a tough time for them, but it's there my fancy, I think, a little bit. Now, on the women's side, who you got? Because we, Ch- we got Chelsea and Man City, and Chelsea, all, I mean, I'm just wondering, where did Man City's women come from? Because they've really come on here this last couple months. Yeah, where did they come from? They've come from. Well, I mean, yeah, they're um, they've got they've got some good players there. They've had a bit of a patchy season in some respects, haven't they? But they've they've picked up a bit. I fancy Chelsea on that one. See, Chelsea have just won the league, um, so they're they're on a high. They can do the double. I think it's hard to look past them in on terms of form over the course of the season. But City have got some excellent players. If they turn it on on the day. They can beat anyone in the women's game. So should be a really interesting game. Um, but I'm going to go Chelsea for that one, I think. Memo to memo to the heads of U.S. Soccer, the MLS, and the NWSL. This is why I want promotion relegation in the United States. Because no matter where you're at, it's a fun time when you get to May, when you get to the end of the season. Whether you're moving up or whether you're moving down, joy, pain, that's football. Now... One thing that's been a joy and has been, in many ways, a touchstone for you has been football for, football versus transphobia over these last four years. For those who may not know, how did this get started? Yeah, so, I mean, football v. transphobia, I think we started in 2018 or 19, I should really remember, but it's been a very strange last few years. Um, but yeah, and we started very, very small. Um, and. So it was 2019, in fact, yeah, I'm getting, getting myself confused. So in 2019, we, I had a conversation with Lou Englefield, who is the director for Football v. Homophobia, which is kind of, like, if you like, our parent campaign that I'd done some work with, um, and, and of Pride Sports, which is kind of like the um, LGBTQ sports organisation in England that works with a lot of the sort of non-governmental sports bodies. And we said we had a conversation before it would be really great to have a campaign specifically around transphobia because it's, it's getting to the point now where there are enough trans people in the game that we really need to start raising awareness of 
what transphobia actually is, trying to help the sport understand how it, you know, how it needs to, in some cases, change to to tackle transphobia better or to make make football a better place for trans people generally. Well, I think we just had a bit of a chat around it. I thought, you know, let, let's do a let's do a small thing, just like a a week of action. We have a month of action for football be homophobia, so a smaller thing. We did it around Trans Day of Visibility, and we thought, first of all, let's just highlight some trans people in the game doing different things. So we did a bunch of little profiles for social media with a quote and a picture of different trans people, and the striking thing is, I was blown away by just how many there were. Like I was expecting a few because I knew a few, but so many people came out of the woodwork that were coaching, uh, that were involved in in refereeing or stewarding or involved in administration of leagues and clubs in various ways. So many people I'd never heard of, and it was fantastic. And so it kind of then snowballed from there, really. How many people came out and put themselves out there? In that first year, and obviously all of these numbers are contextual because we're a small community in a comparatively small country, but um, we probably had 25, 30 people come out of the woodwork in that first year that I'd never I'd never heard of, which when you consider that the amount of people sort of um, that I knew of involved in the game beforehand who were trans in the UK was probably three or four. Um, it was a really, really, really lovely thing to see. Where right where things are now compared to where you were at the beginning. I mean, what what is the landscape for trans people in football in in England right now? Yeah. So I mean, and I guess I'll speak to the whole of the UK really because it's largely similar. I think all of the national governing bodies have got policy in place now that is broadly the same. Um, so I think for trans people wanting to play football. Um, it's the same situation it's been for a few years now. There's policy in place. You know, people can apply to the FA in whatever country they're in um, and get permission. And it's the, roughly the same sort of fairly standard policy that you get in competitive sport across the world, which is typically, you know, show that your hormone level has been below a sort of hormone level, show your testosterone level has been below a certain amount for a certain amount of time, and you get the tick and you can go and play. And it's usually about a year. So for a lot of people, they apply and straight out of the box, they get approval because they've been transitioned for however long and have been, you know, and testosterone suppression for however long. There's a bit of a changing situation in terms of mixed football or, or sort of non or less competitive football, where at the moment, I mean, the FA, the English FA will sanction mixed football under certain circumstances. We're still kind of working <coughs> on how that might look in some of the more, for example, um, non-competitive leagues or sort of grassroots leagues whether there's still a bit bit of work to do there so we've had some some challenges lately with some sort of, for example five-a-side leagues that um you know could be more inclusive than they're actually either allowed to be under their rules or they sort of marketing themselves as more inclusive than they actually are in practice and sometimes that's that's not necessarily bad faith that's just not, not a full understanding of the rules so it's a bit of a complicated picture there but in terms of policy it's pretty clear that the bit that's probably changing is in terms of social awareness and, and um, I guess push back in society and as you've outlined you know the UK is having its kind of transphobia moment if you like um, and, and so how that plays out is a lot of people are a bit worried to get involved in the game or they're in the game and they're trying to 
keep a low profile because they don't want to get any hassle. Um, we've had more incidents of transphobia getting reported at games recently that I've heard about. And obviously there's two sides to that. One is that there's probably more awareness of what transphobia is. There's probably more trans people openly involved in the game, but also there's a greater awareness from people who want to be bigoted, frankly, and, they, and they're acting that out at games. So for example, we had a weekend a few weeks ago where you know, two or three instances of transphobia against the trans person who was involved in a grassroots game that was actually at the game. And that was comparatively rare before, at least directly, um, you know, for a whole multitude of reasons, but that's really increased. And we, you know, even this weekend, just gone, oh, we've just had, I've just been reading about a, like a, a nasty anti-trans protest that happened at a game that had a trans, trans woman playing in it which again is new stuff that we didn't used to have. And it's, it reflects like what else is going on in society. And it's depressing because transparently they're targeting, they're not targeting, the, tr- the protesters are not targeting decision makers. They're not targeting the people who, who make policy. They're just targeting the individuals who are playing and trying to intimidate them. And that's really frustrating. I have a guess as to who probably was behind that protest because mm-hmm. these are the same people who jumped on British airway fl- Airways flights to come over here to the United States to pick on a kid at a college swim meet. So yeah, when you, when you see Probably things like this, <laughs> when you see things like this, just from a personal level, and not just as a transgender woman, but as a player, because you're a footballer, what just goes through your head when you see this? It makes me cross because one of the things that stands out is we're talking about grassroots football here. We're talking about people who are playing for fun. They're probably, you know, they'll be paying to be involved in the game, paying some you know, subscription fees to their club. You know, these are not people who are making money out of the game. These people are just playing because they love football and they want to be involved. And any any women's game or any gender game that you go up to up and down the country, there's people at different points in their footballing career, if you like. You know, there's people that have been playing for years. There's people that have maybe just come back to the game after a period out, for whatever reason. There's there's young you know, boys, girls, kids that are maybe playing in their first adult game or, you know, maybe it's a kid's game. And if you're just coming back to football after the time, or you're just trying it out for the first time and you go along to a game, there's a bunch of people protesting against the fact that someone's playing in that game at a grassroots level. It's intimidating. It's going to put you off. Um, And, you know, we want people to be involved in football and we want people to, you know, to get into the game and to love the game and to get the benefits of it that I get from it, you know, or anyone gets from it, you know, I, it's a, in, in England, particularly, it's a real part of the community. The clubs sit at the center of their communities quite often. And, you know, good clubs do a lot of work with their communities and it's kind of a symbiotic relationship where, you know, they both get better if you have a healthy club in a healthy community. So it has a really big impact and if you take that away from people, you make people feel unsafe in that atmosphere. It, it you know, adversely affects society as a whole. Uh, and I don't think that's like being overly grandiose. I think you know, that is the importance of, I'm sure you'll agree, the importance of sport at the centre of our society and our community. It's a really important thing that helps people feel part of it, even if they're not playing, you know, if they just go and watch or whatever. It's, it's really a big thing. Well, I saw that back when they were talking about that European Super League thing, how people were just yes. so resistant to it. They were so resistant to it because, no, this is taking 
this is taking football away from its grassroots. This is taking yeah. football away from me as a fan, me as a citizen of this town, because that's, I, think, I mean, no, you were saying. I think that's a perfect example because one of the things that was frustrating, one of the many things that was frustrating when the European Super League news dropped was that obviously it's another example of how, you know, sport is being commodified and it's being taken away from what it should be at the centre of our communities into just a big money-making exercise. But also, actually, a lot of people who, in progressive politics, a lot of people who you think should maybe know better were very dismissive of people who were angry about their club being taken away or their sport being taken away, saying, oh, it's just sport, it doesn't matter. But missing that that's a really great opportunity to engage people with more progressive politics and more you know, social and cultural awareness, that actually, you, this is one of the reasons I love activism in football, is because you can reach people who you wouldn't reach in other ways. And you can get them to recognise that, oh, actually, you know, the way our government is run and the way our <laughs> culture and society working at the minute is, is not ideal and you can see that in the way it plays out in your football club or whatever is that would have been a great opportunity to engage them with that and it kind of it didn't happen of course in the end but again there's another bit of a missed opportunity sometimes to build a bit of cultural solidarity against everything that's wrong in our society who's been the most conducive to football versus transphobia in regards to in regards to clubs and teams up and down mm. the table and governing bodies, and who's been the most resistant? Yeah, that's a really good, really good one actually, because I think I've been really surprised by actually the positive reaction we have had from a lot of people. So, I mean, at a grassroots level, there are a lot of clubs which are set up around LGBTQ inclusion, um, and there's some great examples of people like um, some clubs, uh, some LGBTQ clubs in London, for example, like Left Footers, John and Victor, you know, Soho, Soho, who have done some good work around including trans people in the game. Um, and yeah, that goes beyond you know, clubs like Manchester Laces or Brighton Seagulls and, and um, Gold Diggers, Stonewall FC and stuff, who've done lots of work around making their clubs inclusive of people for all genders if, if necessary or you know just self-identifying women and non-binary people and and really doing a lot to create space in which everyone feels welcome and recognizing the kind of the intersectional side of that as well which is really important but also trying to push the spaces that they pay in so leagues and things like that to be more inclusive um so at grassroots level there's loads of good stuff like that and a more elite or professional level i think it was two years ago i was really pleasantly surprised that an awful lot of Premier League and WSL clubs, because they're pretty much the same ones now, <laughs> um, not entirely, but mostly, um, they um, there was a lot of really good stuff that they did around highlighting the work that their LGBT supporters clubs were doing. Um, so, for example, on Football v Transphobia Week of Action, um, quite a few of them shared profiles and shared some sort of videos that their um, LGBTQ clubs had um, made kind of talking about you know, trans people, for example, talking about going to their first game after they transitioned or how they got back into supporting their clubs. And, you know, 
I'll probably do them a disservice by trying to name the ones that, but you know, West Brom Chalbion have always done a really good job on this. Leicester City did a really great job that year. Newcastle United have done a good job. Arsenal have been doing a good job recently. You've got people like Tottenham Hotspur who have been really great allies to the LGBTQ community through their sort of connection with their LGBTQ supporters club recently. You know, Chelsea have done some stuff. Yeah, I'm probably letting people down by not mentioning them, but a couple of years ago, we really started to get some excellent solidarity. Um, and even on some other things like, for example, there was a coincidentally, I think last year, um, during our week of action, there was a high profile incident of a weird sort of online transphobia where there was a rumour that a Premier League men's player was transitioning which was nonsense but there was an awful lot of transphobia that transphobia that was on the internet around that and that players club came out and made some statements of solidarity and stuff for trans people so so recognizing that it wasn't just a case of what well, this is nonsense let's dismiss it but but also a lot of damage hurt is being done to trans people through the nonsense that was being talked about online about it so that was a good kind of example of um, recognizing that sometimes even just what people think is quote unquote banter um, is, is actually quite harmful, which indeed is a lot of the work that we do for FVH and FVT is getting people to understand that it might be harmless to you, but it's not necessarily harmless to the other people that are hearing it. What was your first matches you like? Um, yeah, so I mean, so, probably an important one for me is. I guess the first competitive game after I, I transitioned because uh, it took me quite a while to get there. Um, so I think I started training with my team in 2015 and I didn't get to play my first competitive game until 2017 because there was a whole fiasco around getting the right hormone levels and whatnot. It took 18 months. Um, but the first game I played, I actually scored within about the first 10 minutes. It was a terrible goal. And did we lose the game or did we draw the game? I think we drew the game. Um, I think it might even have been one all. But yeah, I managed to put us one nil up in the first few minutes by just basically their goalkeeper cleared the ball into me and it bounced in. So it was a terrible goal. But that was that was pretty nice, although it wasn't particularly memorable as a as a spectacle, which is nice to be there. Well, you were in quite a spectacle a month ago. A little Indeed. bit more than <laughs> Truck United, Dorwich United. Rather, Truck United, Dulwich Hamlet, a team in the fifth division, battling at the top of the table against a team that was just literally put together, and you ended up making history. First, yeah. what was it like for you just being out there? Because I got a chance to watch the match as it was happening, and I know it was a rough night. And it was a it was a difficult what seven it was a seven nil defeat. It was, it was seven nil, yeah. Yeah, but just seeing you in the midfield with the ball at your foot, mm. that made yeah. me smile, and I'm pretty sure it did for you as well. It did very much so, yeah. And I hope for a lot of other people as well. I mean, it's one of these latest cliches, isn't it? But the result wasn't particularly important. But we we knew going into it that we'd be up against it to get anything out of that game. Um, it wasn't the most important thing, but nevertheless, you want to give as a good account of yourself as possible. And you want to kind of, you know, really show that you, you want to give the opposition a game because, right, it's, it's, it's a football match. You know, it's not, uh, it's not just an exhibition. It's a, it's a sporting event. And so we, 
that, as you say, we were very much thrown together. We had a couple of pullouts late on as well. We had a couple of injuries to a couple of key players. So it was, you know, we didn't have as strong a sign out as we could have had. Um, and Dulwich Hamlet had, I think, a mixture of their first team from tier five. And I think they had some players from their, their second team, which is, I think, in tier six, but a different region to the region because they're in London. I imagine it's quite, I don't know too much about it, but I imagine that's quite a strong league because it's, there's millions of people there. Um, and, but yeah, on a personal level, it was, it was just really fantastic to be part of. Um, I think I, like a lot of other people, probably had, probably struck by it more emotionally than I thought I was going to be. Um, like, particularly at the end, when we, like, there was a, it just felt like it was quite a big thing. We had more people come to watch. Yeah, probably more people come to watch than I, than any game I've ever played in before. I had a cup final with quite a few people before, but I think this was more people, um, which again was just brilliant how, how good everyone was throughout, making loads of noise. They were singing songs in support. Um, it was lovely to watch Dulwich Hamlet play because, again, probably one of the best teams I've ever played against, if not the best teams I've ever, best team I've ever played against, at least on paper, you know. Um, and they, yeah, really lovely team to play against, played excellent football, played all in the right spirit uh, from both teams. You know, there was no silliness, there was no nastiness, there was no, it was just a, everyone seems to really enjoy being there. But I would say for me, and I guess a lot of the other trans women and non-binary people on our team was that it was just, it felt it felt very important. It felt like we were, you know, that I don't know if it is the first time globally that we had women and non-binary people making up an entire team. I, I know there are tr entirely trans teams in India and Mexico, for example, but I don't know if they've ever had a whole team of trans women. So, from, um, from our digging, no, yeah. this is the first no. time that you ever had all trans feminine people in one team. Yeah. Yeah, and so, like I said, for me, that made me smile thinking that here's more of me. Here's a team full of me out there. Yeah. Yeah. And and I hope, and I have heard from people that, you know, felt inspired by that. And, and indeed, a few of the team that haven't played football in any sort of real sort of competitive or organized sense for a while have since sought out clubs and have started to try and get back involved with the game, you know, more regularly, which is wonderful. And it's exactly the exact sort of thing that I know Lucy wants the team to be. I think she said on the podcast before saying, uh, it's about trying to create a space where people can get into the game and then hopefully that give them a pathway and then they can be involved more often. Um, and, you, you know, there's probably a, a squad of 25, 30 trans women and non-binary people out there for a truck uh, at the moment that, you know, depending on where the game is in the country, they might get involved and I hope that if they are able to get involved then that's a pathway then into the game for them and you know obviously we're talking about playing here but for some of them it might take the format of coaching or refereeing or whatever um just really lovely to be able to be part of setting that example and taking up that space so that other people can maybe gain some some confidence from it Lucy, Lucy Clark, if you're listening to this or watching this, just want you to know that, no, that I'm putting the call out to all trans folks who play some soccer here in the United States because we want to have a, we want to have a friendship cup match with Truck United. 
We want to build yeah. an American team. We're, I am committed to seeing this happen. We want it to happen. Um, we'll we'll raise some money. We'll fly over there. Yeah. Let's see, why not? Let's you. Yeah, yeah. Let's see if we can yeah, have exactly, the match Wembley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Look, we it'd be great to if we can make something like this happen. You know, then we should try and make it as big an event as possible <laughs> and try and try and really make something of it because. Yeah, we've ticked off one box, which is the whole team of trans women now, and trans women and trans feminine people. But yeah, the next box is two teams. Um, well, so, if, that, if there's a way we can get some Americans a part of that, I want to be a part of that because yeah. I'll, admit, I'll admit, even with my meager skills that I have or don't have, I want to play. There's a player on the team who had some serious skills, and that was your person in in your net, who yes. recently, who recently got the call up to the England University squad. How important yeah. is that for trans people for Blair Hamilton to get that call? Yeah, I mean it's I mean, first and foremost for Blair, I mean it's a recognition that she's a wonderful goalkeeper. <laughs> we were we were having a good laugh about the fact that obviously it's England she's been called up for and she's very much a proud Scot. Um so, <laughs> so it's quite a oh quite that's a, right. irony there. Oh yeah. that's that's kind of difficult right there. Yeah, for, that's for, for, but I mean, look, I, I know she's she's very proud, and, and and she rightly should be to be called up for Indian universities because, of course, being at English university, right, it's a play for Indian universities. Um, so it's not it's not a, not a clash, but it was it gave us a bit of a bit of comedic value beforehand. But yeah, I mean, she she had a fantastic game, didn't she? I mean, was anyone who saw that certainly she was an standout player, made some wonderful saves, you know. For, it's always nice to have a goalkeeper of that quality behind you, um, and I think she's one of one of. Uh, you know, I don't want to say the, but one of the the trans women playing at, or well, you know, the highest levels that we have trans women playing at in this country that at least I'm aware of. And there will likely be those that I'm not aware of, um, but yeah, I know she's kind of been a bit of a. You know, that was a source of inspiration for some of the people playing as well, seeing that, you know, she's there achieving that. Um, it is important because, unfortunately, we've seen this in so many countries, particularly in the US, that any trans woman who gets any sort of, however meager sporting success, it becomes a lightning rod for criticism from the usual suspects. And uh, sadly, she's been no exception to that. I know she's had a lot of awful stuff thrown at her before that news came out but certainly since that news came out um and you know that's it's horrible um but well there is, there is no but about it you know it's horrible i guess there's also a side to that which means that someone somebody is going to face that sooner or later sadly because that's the that's the the culture and society we're living in i don't i don't like that and i wish that wasn't the case but the fact that that's happening now is interesting because it's i don't think it's necessarily that we're seeing more trans people and more trans women in football than perhaps we were a couple of years ago there probably is an element of that but it's just particularly that it is uh, i guess strategically important for our enemies to be to be doing this at this moment now um, so I, what I hope and what I'm, I'm sure will happen is that the, the trans community and, and particularly trans people in sport will rally around whoever is targeted by that. And I, you know, Blair will obviously have my own sort of unequivocal support on this um, to, to 
to make sure that these people feel supported because the danger is is that people get when they get targeted like this people get isolated and they either decide to hide or they drop out of the game or they sort of feel that they should pass up these opportunities which are which are offered to them and i I really hope that that doesn't happen to people um on a personal note i'd say you know it's really lovely to see the amount of support she gets from her team um, so every time something like this happens, which sadly is all too often, as we said, her team seem fantastic about it. They all seem to have her back. And critically, the, the opposition teams do as well, because it would be easy for them to, to use her being trans as an excuse for them not scoring against her, which happens quite a lot. <laughs> um, but they don't seem to do that. It probably has happens on occasion, but you know, generally, like, like, like I see, we have the support of the other players in our league as well, which is which is important because if if any of them wanted to phone up the newspapers and say, "Hey, it's unfair, I'm playing against trans women," we all know that those newspaper editors' doors would be open to listen to that, um, and we don't see any of that. So I think that's quite quite striking. No, that's that's a good thing because right in front of me right now is a story from a certain outlet. A certain outlet that had a very prominent person actually leave it because it was so toxic. Um, yes, I'm talking about GB News. Six-foot mm. goalkeeper was born a male. Yeah. Now, now there's something I want to see trans, trans um, football versus transphobia call that out. As a journalist, Aiden J. Wood, yeah, I'm talking to you. Digital producer for GB News. Cut it out. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's things like... And quit quoting Maya Forstater. Does she have a job yet? Uh, well, making making money off people on the internet. <laughs> I know. I know she's in. I know she's in the grift thing now. But yeah. women will lose out from being on the squad and will potentially be put under pressure not to speak up about it. Maya, get a job. But it's yeah. the it's things like this. I'll admit this incenses me because no one should have to. First off, aren't most goalkeepers kind of tall? to begin with well, yeah i mean i'm glad you pulled that out as the first point because you know like it's a it's a position that tends to select for height and you know generally like in in the women's game just as in the men's game like often when you look at a team photo the tallest player is the goalkeeper and it's 2022 like there's a lot of quite tall women around like you know and i know the population has been getting taller over time and so six foot is not particularly outlandishly tall for a goalkeeper if you look at the heights of top goalkeepers across the country it's pretty average i would say you know it's above average for, for a woman yes but it's most goalkeepers are above average height for a woman <laughs> it's, it's just how it works it's a very strange argument to make but like a lot of these things these arguments are aimed at people who don't know about football who don't know about sport or aren't, who aren't interested in it you know there's always a, a claim made that you know trans women are taking away spaces from from cis women on on their teams it's like, that's not really how football works there's there's generally spaces I, I don't know too many people that are not playing because they can't get in the side somewhere if you don't get in the side somewhere you just go to a different team and you play there it's that's generally how it works there, there aren't people on waiting lists for football teams as a general rule in this country it just it doesn't work like that do you ever just want to walk up to say the front door of the daily fail and just say would you please shut up all of you yeah yeah because i mean the, the frustrating thing about it is that i guess we come to expect some debate about these things i don't think any 
being absolutely honest, I don't think any trans person or trans woman in particular expects or expected, as most of it's already happened some time ago, but expected sporting governing bodies to just be like, hey, yeah, you know, just we'll just make trans inclusive policy. Yeah, no problem at all. We'll just we'll just do that and it'll all be fine and, and we won't we won't bother to investigate anything. That that wasn't what happened. And for sports that haven't done that yet, that's never going to be what's going to happen because, you know, sporting governing bodies are fundamentally quite conservative and they're not going to just let people you know, let trans people play in their in their real gender without doing some research first, whether we like that or not. That was never going to happen, and isn't what happened. And so, this idea that they've just kind of yeah, whatever. You know, or something I see a lot is people complaining about woke sporting organisations, and I'm like, <laughs> I can't think of too many organisations that you less um, less call woke than you know the IOC or the FA or whatever. They're well, not exactly what you would call. Um, progressive organizations as a general rule so it's a very strange argument it is strange i mean especially i know one sporting organization that's not woke i know i can name one that's not woke because they ran in florida a couple of days ago formula one they're not woke no. <laughs> no. they no. ran in a state really that basically said you can't say gay yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and yes again in the past i know We've, there's been quite a lot of success in terms of um, sporting activism from sporting organisations pulling events from or not investing in states or nations or whatever where um, they're oppressive to LGBTQ people or, or you know, whatever whatever those, was it North Carolina a, a couple of years back was trying to introduce yeah, the North, bathroom North Carolina bill, at the bathroom and the, the NBA pulled uh, some of the playoffs from there or something, didn't they? I'm not totally okay with that, but yeah, there was some, some good stuff done there and I just, yeah, it would be nice if well, there was some, a bit more solidarity sometimes on these situations. Well, I would love the NBA to pull the, the next and the next year's NBA All-Star Game will be in Utah. Utah okay. recently passed a bill that banned trans student-athletes from school sports that basically only affect four kids in the what? entire state. Oh, was it four? It only, okay, yeah. Well. It, it affected, like, three three who, who are on the trans-masculine end of the spectrum and one trans girl who was, like, who was identified. Yeah. There's an even bigger elephant that's looming in the room. And it led to it led to a ruling that, quite frankly, I I don't know about anyone else. I thought was unfair, and that was the matter of Emily Bridges. How much did, did that whole situation kind of had you have you holding your breath? Yeah, I mean, it was so oh, yes on so many levels. So, firstly, it emerged that Emily was going to be competing in her first race in women's cycling, um, first competitive race, you know, um, and of course, sadly, that has as much as you'd love to be just delighted about that, I think, wow, you know, she's getting getting forward in her career and so on. There's a part of you as a trans person in the UK or any trans person involved in sport, I guess, that's thinking, oh, God, you know, the usual suspects are going to be complaining about this no end. Um, and, of course, it's an awkward one because, as we've seen, for, particularly with Laurel Hubbard, for example, where if you don't win, 
But if you win, obviously people complain, but we haven't had too many examples of that. <laughs> but, you know, but if you don't win, then people make the ludicrous suggestion that you somehow threw it or didn't try, which is just baffling. Or they try and say that, you know, um, yeah, we, you know you're obviously we're just taking up a space for a quote-unquote real woman uh, and someone else would have done better. And it's like, well, if someone else would have done better, then they would have qualified ahead. <laughs> so there's some very strange, again, it's people that typically they don't really know about sports and they're not interested in sport. But so it had me, had me bracing myself a little bit on that level. And then, of course, it emerged a couple of days before the event that um, UCI had said that she didn't meet the criteria to compete, even though British Cycling had given her permission to compete. And I don't think yet we've really got confirmation of what that was actually about um there's a lot of speculation um i've heard from people close to it that you know there's a lot more to it that we haven't heard but i don't know what that is but it's a very very strange situation and it just seems like british cycling have kind of folded completely and obviously they've now withdrawn their trans policy so they don't have a trans policy at the moment um so Emily is currently just kind of stuck in limbo a bit and can't compete, um, at least in the, in women's cycling. Um, for people competing at a more grassroots level, I understand they're still able to at the moment from a couple of anecdotal things I've heard, but I'm not sure how official that is because there's just no policy at all now, so I don't know what the rules are. Um, it's very much a mess, and it's a very good example of, I think, what happens with... Um, a lot of the time, what worries me with sporting governing bodies policies sometimes is that they're made and they're made with justification. But from a PR perspective, they just hope that it never actually arises. And in most cases, of course, it, it never really has arrived, uh, arised at, at an elite level, at least. You know, most, most sports don't have a trans person or at least a trans woman competing at any sort of elite level. So these policies have never had to be enacted. To Grand knowledge, I guess, um, and so therefore they just hope that it never comes up, and that they never have to deal with having to justify it or stand by it if it does happen. And of course, in this situation, as soon as they've had to try and stand by it, they failed the test and they've just folded and thrown it away. Um, and I guess it it worries me because what happens when, it, when the same thing happens to another sport? Because we know now, every time a high-profile trans woman is going to compete in women's sport that sport is going to be attacked probably from all over the world by all sorts of people and journalists will be asking politicians questions about it and there'll be immense pressure on that sporting organisation. So they have to be prepared to stand by those policies. If they're not prepared to stand by those policies, then they need to have a think about what they're going to do because it's not sustainable to just have those policies out there and say, that they're fine until you actually need to use them and then we're going to withdraw them. That, that doesn't help anyone. So that worries me. How much does that fear get in the way of some of the initiatives that you tried to build? Because in the case of the National Omnium Championships, which Emily Bridges was going to run at, I could see British Cycling saying this. You know, hmm. we really want to be fair towards Emily, but, but I don't want Posey Parker and her merry band of transphobes in the velodrome protesting. Yep. We saw what happened in America. We don't want that here. How much of that fear, in a sense, 
kind of interferes with what you try to do in outreach to these clubs and to these leagues and to these governing bodies? Yeah, it does. I mean, on a couple of levels, because I think I guess first and foremost is you're always trying to balance in any sort of sort of policy activism or whatever like this. You're trying to balance how strong a message do we want to give publicly versus how strong a message do we want to give privately when we're talking to governing bodies and organizations and so on and what is actually achievable because i mean for example you know we've had a couple of things in football where there's been a lot of upset and noise from for example what, what about a particular incident that might have happened or whatever where someone's not been included for example and then we're left with a decision of how much do we try to um, push for a change in policy that might make something a little bit better versus actually trying to stand behind the policy that's already there because it might be that um, we know there's an awful lot of people pushing for the total removal of these policies. So from a a stakeholder management or a PR or political aspects, on the one hand, you're, you're trying to balance pushing for improvement versus not allowing anything to backslide and you know four or five years ago we were certainly constantly pushing for improvement and this is you know very probably uk specific but i guess it's probably similar picture in the us as well other countries probably going to be different but versus now we're kind of almost trying to consolidate behind what we got from a political perspective um to try and you know, shore that up and make sure that we're not going to start losing um, people's access to sport and of course that plays out in how you know what what you're going to say publicly how you're going to frame things and in terms of football view transphobia i've always been quite keen to frame it mostly around grassroots and participation in recreational level sport anyway and not just focus on playing because of course a lot of people get their particularly football you know far more people watch football than play football so it's really important that when people and trans people go to a Premier League stadium and EFL stadium and WSL stadium or whatever that they have a positive experience when they go to those games and they feel safe they feel welcome we see this as much as you can maybe as in a way support sometimes you know that they're not that trans people aren't put off of being involved in football even at that level and of course there is absolutely no legitimate just asking questions quote-unquote debate argument that any trans folk can give for why trans people should be able to go and watch football in safety. So that should be a politically neutral point. Um, so obviously that's part of the campaign, and that's a key part of the campaign, is working with clubs to make sure that works. Um, you know, people should be able to referee games regardless of gender. It doesn't matter. You know, there's no rules around what gender you have to be to referee a certain gender of football match. All of that kind of stuff. So a lot of our campaign is is around all that kind of thing because that's the vast vast majority of people enjoying football are doing it that way they're not elite sports people but it's also been cognizant of the fact that if if trans women are not women at the top level of the sport then trans women are probably not going to be women at every other level of the sport because sport has a tendency to take stuff from the top and just filter it down so we have to get that right um and at the moment i think generally we are that there's work to do but like i said at the moment it's just about making sure that working with as many stakeholders as possible to build a coalition that we have that strength that that it's not going to backslide for yourself 
because you talked about earlier how you were just proud to just be on that pitch on March 31st. What led you to ultimately, one, come out and be who you are, and then in turn led you to decide, hey, I want to play this game as I am. Mm. Where, where did that start and where did it come from? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously the decision to kind of come out, I guess it's something like a lot of people, you know, I, I was sort of 29, 28, 29 when I started to come out properly. Um, and like a lot of people, I guess it's something I've kind of run away from for a lot of my life. It's something that I, I guess, probably had first realization of something when I was about four. It's probably that sounds like quite a normal experience, I guess, you know, a couple of other times in my teens. I remember when I was 18, kind of thinking, oh, God, this is something I'm going to have to just kind of deal with and put in a box and pretend isn't there for, for the rest of my life, you know. Um, that, I'm of that age of people in the UK that um, we didn't have any, nobody talked about this when we were at school. We had Section 28 or Clause 28, which meant that you literally weren't allowed to talk about it. There was no representation of trans people in media other than, you know, the occasional murdered sex worker on a on a cop show you know that was basically it um so difficult to to understand more about yourself through through anything that i had access to and then i think as i got into my late 20s and i think just couldn't deal with it anymore i think it was for me i wasn't one of these people that um like hopefully a lot more people are able to now who can come out in kind of a positive way and can kind of you know, um, maybe experiment and maybe work out who they are a with a little bit more support and safety. For me, it was just kind of just reaching the point where I couldn't do it anymore. And I had support around me, so my family was supportive, and my you know, friends were supportive, and so on. So it wasn't. I, I was quite lucky in that regard. But yeah, it was it was a bit of a last resort almost for me. And at the time, I very much thought. You know, that's probably it for me in terms of playing football. In my late 20s, I thought at the time, I think policy required, or maybe might have just changed around then, but it was around the time when policy required you to be, I think, two or three years post, um, post lower surgery, basically, before you could play. So I thought, well, by the time I've got that, because waiting list took quite long, by the time I've got access to that surgery, if I even want it, um, and then waited that time. I'm going to be in my mid to late 30s, so it's probably just not going to happen. But as it happened, policy changed. Um, I wasn't too drastically long in going through the, the GIC system. It's a lot worse now. I think I waited like 18 months to see someone and another 18 months for, for two years for surgery referral, which you know, people wait longer than that now, even for their first appointment. Um, and then I watched the World Cup in Canada in 2015, the Women's World Cup. And if, uh, that was, I think, a bit of a cultural moment for a lot of people, a lot of people in, in the UK, at least you know, in terms of visibility of the women's game. It was obviously on quite late at night because it was in Canada. <laughs> but um, obviously England did pretty well, got to the semi-final, lost ultimately because of that kind of quite... Um, I guess for, for us, it was quite tragic own goal that Laura Bassett scored. Um, and a lot of people watched that and a lot of girls really got inspired. And I guess women got, you know, 
who had been maybe out of the game or had never really considered it, got really inspired by that and thought, okay, maybe this is for me. And I, I was absolutely just one of those people. So I reached out to my club um, after that, you know, after watching that tournament and thought, I'll just give it a go. You know, I'll, I'll email them. I was like, I had a women's club that was five, 10 minutes walk from my house. I was you know, a much wider football club than that, but they had, they had a women's team at a grassroots level. So I still play for. And they said, um, yeah, come down to training is fine. I, I said, I don't know what the rules are, but we'll, we'll find out. I did know what the rules are by that point, but I figured, you know, it's more important to me that they're not going to reject me. Um, and so they were fine. And, I kind of went from there and they kind of were good enough to support me through getting my permission to play. They weren't involved in that process at all because you have to, it's just between me and the FA, but you know, they supported me, let me play in friendlies and let me train whilst all that was going on. Um, but yeah, one of the best things I've done because it's given me that <laughs> a bit of connection to community, you know, but I, I had friends, but like it's given me a, a wider social group. Um, give me that you know, got me active and you know, there's a lot of a lot of evidence that proves that physical activity in sport is good for your mental health not true for everyone but you know it, generally it's a positive uh, positive indicator I've really got that it's really lovely to be able to kind of run around and forget about some stuff and I've got involved in all this other stuff as well which has been great for kind of you know I'd say even from a professional level I've got so much out of kind of being able to work with like senior people in sports administration and you know media stuff and stuff like that which hopefully got better at all sorts of stuff which is then impacted on my day job and it's just this wonderful kind of ecosystem of different things that are fitted together that have really really helped and, and first and foremost of course um i um was invited to come and speak at a conference i guess in 2016 or something about getting into football and that's where i met my wife so i wouldn't have had that without any of this <laughs> so that whole thing has kind of worked really quite nicely actually exit question here i talk a lot about trans joy here at the transporter room where do you find yours i think i get it in a few areas now actually but i'm going to start with football because one of the things i love is every year football be transphobia week of action I always get a DM or two or an email or something from someone who usually someone I've not heard from before or I'm not familiar with who's maybe points to a bit of the content or something and says either, you know, thank you for this. This is, this has inspired me to go and find a football club and I've got, you know, I'm, I'm either going to go and play football for the first time in 10 years, or I'm going to reach out to my LGBTQ supporters club and we're going to go and I'm going to go with them to watch a game next week or something, or someone asking some questions around, you know, is there a, can you recommend me a local club or something like that? And we'll maybe work with some people to find them someone and then you'll hear from them a bit later and say they actually have got involved. And every year that happens. And then quite often you connect with these people over social media or whatever, and you follow them and you see what they get up to. And then you see them maybe a couple of years later doing what I've been doing and talk to someone about getting involved in football. Um, there's a guy called Arthur Weber, for example, on Twitter, um, who you, you might have seen. He, he does quite a lot of work. Um, he's, was, um, he's a piece of talks about Arsenal and talk quite a bit about that. But he has started playing football recently and I'm not taking credit for that because it's not my doing at all. But just seeing people like that, for example, 
getting back involved in the game, getting back. He did a podcast with us for Referee T this year. Um, getting back in the game and getting that kind of joy and seeing them grow is, is just wonderful. Um, and I see, I get to see that quite a lot, which is really lovely. Um, that's probably, that's one of the big things. And there's a lot of other things at the moment you know, around kind of trying to take some time out of the social media nonsense and just kind of going about your daily life. And, you know, I've been you know lucky enough to kind of have a bit of a, like a, a bit of a queer community around where I live. And sometimes we just go for a run together or, you know, do, do some stuff and just actually kind of think, as much as everyone thinks the UK is a terrible place to be trans at the minute, if you read too much of the news, it is. There's so much, actually, that so much progress we've made in the last 10 or 20 years, just even at the time that I've been kind of conscious of it, really. Um, there's an awful lot of positive stuff that happens and an awful lot of trans people being successful, doing what they love, um, we saw a couple of trans count, trans people getting elected to local councils, for example, this and week. And a couple, which, and a lot of transphobes lose too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, one of the one of the um, sort of councils local to where I am. We didn't actually have an election where I live, but one of the ones locally, one of the parties did a really transphobic campaign. Basically, they seemed to major on it quite a lot. Um, and just got rejected and lost a couple of seats. They just did really, really badly. And it just reminds you that actually it's a vocal minority of people who have got the years of some very influential people at the minute, but what they don't have is the numbers on the ground. And they don't have the public support people as much as the newspapers and the media and so on might want you to think that people in the UK hate trans people. The fact of the matter is they generally don't. And they just, just let you get on with stuff. The only hassle I've ever had playing football on any significant level, this course is the occasional person, the only one organised sort of bit of harassment I had was before any of this nonsense in the media ever kicked off. And it was just one game that the opposition were just awful to me, which I think I might have talked about before. Um, other than that, generally people are pretty nice. And I think it's it's actually on the ground. I don't want to erase the experiences of people that have had awful stuff going on but you know generally people are all right there's a lot of joy to be had i would agree with that and it just if nothing else that's just a symbol to all the people who are allies out there speak out yep. speaking out can make a difference it makes a world of difference yeah absolutely so, you know to have to have someone proactively raise something uh to, to make stuff a little bit better for trans people without you having to be the person that does it Makes a lot of difference. As I tell people a lot, please act a fool so that I don't need to. Yeah, I love that. But, but Natalie, thanks for being on the transporter room, and more so, thanks for doing what you're doing, because it's making a dent not just where you are; it's making a dent everywhere. And a lot of what you're doing is inspiring people in my own country to really get to work and fight against the nonsense that we're seeing here in the United States. So you keep raising your voice. We'll keep raising you. We'll keep raising ours and we'll raise them together. Natalie, thank you for all you do. And hey, enjoy this summer. And you know, from time to time, we're going to want you back. I'll yeah. tell you when I want you back for certain world cup yeah. time. 
I'm getting all, <laughs> I'm getting all the trans football analysts together, and we're going to do a World Cup preview. Yeah, let's do we're, it. We're going to well do. Yeah, okay, I'm going to I'm going to beam you back down to England. I'll have you join and enjoy your summer. I'll see you down the road, and definitely we're going to be talking Cutter here in a couple months. So I'm going to going to beam Natalie back down, and thanks Natalie Washington for being on the Transporter Room this weekend. Also, thanks to all of you. For being a part of Transporter Room Nation. Now, if there's something you want to see or someone you want to see, I know a few someones you want to see. I would want to see like Pippa York, for example. Yeah, Pippa, I would like to, I want to beam you up, particularly before Tour de France time. But there's some something you want to see or something you want to say about what I'm doing here at the Transporter Room. By all means, please leave a message on our Twitter page, leave a message on our Facebook page, and leave a message at our Instagram presence, Transporter Room 10 Forward. Remember, everything I do here at the Transporter Room, I do for all of you, the people who support us. And that's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Live long and prosper and steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week.